Thanks a lot for coming. Uh, what we're going to try and do today is to think about how it is that we create characters. So, well, that's, that's the idea of it. So you need to be prepared to do a little bit of writing. Are you up for that? Wow, that was terrible. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So let's tell a story to start. Uh, this is a story about the Bell Van Gogh, who is the founder of the Hasidic movement. Don't take notes on this, so you listen to this story. The Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, and he comes one night to a small, small town in Poland where he's going to stay for several days with some of his disciples to, to learn from him. So the day comes, the morning comes, and the, his disciples are in the room, and they are eager and watchful, and the Baal Shem Tov comes in. And as he comes into the room, he looks out <coughs> through his window and sees one guy walking quickly down through the snow, but not to him, not to where the synagogue is, even though the services are over. And the Baal Shem Tov watched him, and he did it at the same time next time, and next time, and next time, but this guy never came in to be with the disciples. So eventually, he asked one of the other disciples, who is that guy? Who is he? And he told the Baal Shem Tov, well, he is the, the person in our village who weaves stockings. He's pretty good at it. In fact, he's very good at it. And the Baal Shem Tov says, why is he in such a hurry? Well, says the guy, he's a little bit nuts. He goes down into the synagogue to do his prayers. He goes, even though he's all alone, which he's not supposed to do, you know that Baal Shem Tov. And he does it all by himself every day, quickly does them, and then heads back. And the Baal Shem Tov is intrigued by this. And eventually he says to this disciple, ask him to come, tell him I want to buy some stockings. And so that evening, this guy comes, and he drinks several stockings from the Baal Shem Tov. See, the Baal Shem Tov says, I see you each day going down to the synagogue for prayers. And he nods, and he says, by yourself, and he nods again. Yes, he says, I only have a few minutes. And the Baal Shem Tov nods, he's not going to repeat him. And he looks at the stockings, and they're really good. And the Baal Shem Tov says, how much? And he says, two gilder. And the Baal Shem Tov says, would you take one? And the guy says, um, if I would take one. I would have said one. No, there are two. And the Baal Shem Tov was a little surprised. But he looks at them. They're so good. And he says, I'll take them. And he buys the stockings to a builder. And as they're exchanging his money, he says to him, how do you make this? And the guy explains. He explains getting the, the woven material. He explains how it is that he molds them. He explains the hot water and everything else that goes with it. And he says, so what do you do when you make when you're making these wonderful stockings? And the guy says, I recite the prayers, I recite the law, I recite the songs. And the Belshantov asks him, which ones? And he tells him, and he recites them to the Belshantov. And he hands over the stockings, and Belshantov hands over the two gilded. And the guy goes out, and the Belshantov sits down and he puts on the stockings. They are so comfortable. They are so warm. He feels like he can walk to the holy gates of heaven. 
disciples come back in and the Baal Shem Tov is feeling these stockings on his feet and they say we told you he was a little bit nuts did he make you pay two gilder? the Baal Shem Tov nuts so the gas that he would make you pay that much money and they say yeah he's a crazy guy but we have lots of crazy people in the village and the Baal Shem Tov stands up with these wonderful stockings on and he says Tell you the truth. That man that you have just seen walk out, he will hold up the cornerstones of the temple until the Messiah comes. And that's the end of the story. It's not a lie. He will hold up the corners of the temple until the Messiah comes. <coughs> what did the Belshazzar see? And how did he go from what he sees? to that kind of belief. And that is how we create characters. That's how we do it. To create character, we always, always move from outside in. What, it is that, what do we see first? What's it that we see in this person? What do we see this person doing? And how does that tell us then about what this person is like inside? And that is the key to creating character. As soon as you start the other way, you a character who is such and such, and you describe what this character is like inside, you've already lost the reader. The reader doesn't work that well. The reader doesn't care. The reader isn't convinced. There's nothing to make him believe that. But if you say, here's what's going on on the outside, you show us that, then it's the reader that begins to make inference. It's the reader begins to make decisions about the interior of this person. And as soon as you've done that, look at what's happened with your engagement. Now it's the reader that's creating the meaning. In other words, the reader is participating in creating the meaning of the book. And now you have engagement. Now you have commitment to the book. It's exactly how it works. <coughs> so what I'd like to do is kind of show you an exercise that encourages that. So how do we get from the outside to the interior? And for me as a writer, it's taken me about uh, two years. But we're going to do it in like 40 minutes. But just to give you a sense of this and how to do this, imagine that you're in a park right now. And you're watching someone throw a frisbee. I don't know, maybe in middle school order, maybe in adult. You're watching someone throw a frisbee. Think of how many things you could tell us about the interior of that character just from having her, just from watching her throw a frisbee. Just imagine what you could learn. Or, you are walking around your block. You see someone with a dog. You know, a real dog, not a little poo-poo dog. <laughs> and they're walking the real dog. And it's late. Maybe supper's on the table already. This person, maybe it's raining. Imagine what you will know about the interior of that character just by watching the exterior of the character. Or, you are at a, at a grocery store. You are going to where the melons are. The secret of how to, type, how to figure out whether the melon was right is a deep and dark secret that no one knows. <laughs> it's almost a secret as powerful as how to know when the pineapple was right. No one will ever know. Well, there's lots of voodoo about it. What would you learn about someone watching this person choose a melon? 
Suppose that person walks up to the group, to the melons there on the counter, takes one, doesn't do anything, and puts it into the basket. As opposed to the person who goes up and fondles melon, <laughs> you know, who, who like presses the into the, the little button on the outside and then smells it. Oh, that doesn't work. That works. I mean, what does that tell us about that particular person who does that? How do we know about her interior? And on and on and How is it that we learn from the exterior about the interior? Or how is it that we encourage our readers to do that? So I'm going to give you an envelope in a second here. I think we have to share them. Sorry, life is tough. Um, we can probably do this in pairs. I think I have enough. And inside are uh, photographs for representation, or like facsimiles of photographs. They're all from about the same period, about Until I, you know, we do it together, so that we have the experience, you know, on, on mass here. I have no idea how this is going to work if we hand out these photographs, but you're all teaching, right? So you got this. <laughs> really? <laughs> all right. <laughs> this is very fast. Whether you get any credit for what we're about to do, and then how will you do this? That's great. Thank you.
to stay outside for a little while. So right now, sleeves, something that you find interesting about the way this person looks, and that is really vague, I get that, but something that strikes you about the way this person looks, maybe it's her hair, maybe it's the dress that this person's wearing, maybe it's the stance that the guy is in, um, whatever it is, maybe it's the background, something that you find interesting about the person or the background, something that's intriguing. And again, first impressions count here. Okay, last question on this. The last one for this part. What does this person do? What's the vocation that this person has? Remember, this is like 1880, 1890. So if you put down pilot, you're objectively wrong. <laughs> if you put down computer analyst, then we should probably talk. What is the job this person has? Person walks, and you can tell we're still staying outside. 
How does your person walk? Is this someone who kind of slides her feet along? Is this someone who walks with her hands, his hands behind his back, say? Is this person someone who walks like this? Are your hands in the pockets? How does your character walk? The way a person walks can tell you a lot about the hand. So this walk, this is, for lack of a better term, the Prince Charles walk. <laughs> you watch him, anytime he's walking when he's not parading, his hands are behind him, which is an incredibly complicated but also very confident movement, right? Because this is saying, I'm Prince Charles, nothing can touch me. As opposed to this person, as opposed to this person walking. Okay, next thing. Your person now sits down. Let's imagine I'm a student in Mr. Bennett's classroom. And I'm sitting like this, and I'm leaning forward like this. What message am I sending to Mr. Ben? I'm interested, I want to hear you. This is, I'm engaged with this. There's something going on. Even the way I have my legs here suggests a kind of forward motion into what he's about to say. Now I'm a student in this class and I'm like this. What, motion, what am I sending to Mr. Ben? It's really different, isn't it? And you know something about our relationship, right? And you know something about my engagement. You know something about my interior. Just this this. Now imagine that there are rows here, right, all around me. I come in, Mr. Ben is up at his desk, and I go, this to come. What message am I sending to Mr. Ben? He's blowing off, right? And I want him to know, this is pretty clear, right? I want him to know that I'm blowing him off. I take my chair, imagine that there's a back to it, and I bring it around so the back is towards Mr. Ben, and then I sit straddling the chair. What message? This is pretty challenging. <laughs> this is pretty challenging. But it also depends on where I am. If I'm in Mr. Ben's class in his homeroom, and the front of the chair here is now, from the chairs here, and I'm doing that. That's one message I'm sending. But suppose after, <coughs> after school, I'm in the drama club, and Mr. Ben is the drama coach, and we've done like 16 musicals together, and we're going to talk about the next musical, and all the other students who are going to be in the play are all around us. Does it feel different? It's a really different feel then, isn't it? So here's Okay, we're not in a formal setting. We kind of know each other pretty well, and we're comfortable with each other, and I can do something like that, and it's not a challenge at all. It's just being comfortable. That's different too. The way a person sits, like the way a person walks, will also tell me something about how the character is feeling inside. So imagine your character, knowing how he or she walks, comes in, and sits down in some, whatever, meeting situation. 
how does your character sit? And if you have trouble visualizing it, watch the hands. So this is obviously different from this, is different from this, is way different from this, because there's an exam I'm about to get or something like that. All of those are different. So how does your character sit? Give me a little bit of description now. Oh, 
how quickly you went interior? I mean, that he feels like an imposter, which all this has felt, I felt, right? We've all known that feeling. And so what you tend to do when you're feeling that is to be uber sure that you actually are presenting yourself as the person you want to be seen as. So often he said that. Um, but for him, sure, you can just imagine, um, where do I put my hands? That kind of thing. Good. All of these are still exterior. Notice we don't have a story yet, but already the ones we've just heard here, we're already getting really pretty interestingly deep inside these characters. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Your character sits down, even yours, <laughs> and is approached by someone who kind of, they kind of know each other, they're not intimate, they kind of just know each other. And that person comes and says some sort of greeting. What does your person do in response to a greeting? How does your person greet someone else? What's the language that he or she uses? And notice on this guy, it could be quite a variety, right? So, hey, is different from, how nice to see you, is different from, good morning, which is different from looking up and saying, go away. How is it that your character greets someone who has greeted him or her? What, that, what does that person like to say? Remember now, you know a lot about your character already. Keep that consistent. Okay, we're gonna move on. Still exterior, we're still outside. Your character goes home and walks into the house or wherever it is that your character is, is living. The choices that a character will make at this point are really kind of interesting and will tell us a lot about him or her. So for example, when your students go home, they walk into a house and they go to what room, guys? Almost always kitchen, right? Why? People, right? But that's a public choice, isn't it? I know that that's a pretty public choice. You're going to walk in there, maybe siblings are there, maybe mom's there or dad's there, um, maybe grandma's there, maybe a friend's come home. But it tends to be a sort of public place. Now look what this gives me as a writer. I know now that if I have my character walk into the house and not go into the kitchen, that tells me something about how this character is, maybe the character is more of an introvert, or it tells me something about the day. 
just doesn't want to talk about it. So it's just that moment when you ask your kiddo, hey, how was school today? And the kiddo says, fine. And you go, what'd you do? And the kiddo says, nothing. And you know, the first might be a lie, but the second for sure is a lie. Why do you say that? I mean, why do we say that as kids? Well, there is that deep inside part of us that's private, even in our families, that deep, deep part, which doesn't want necessarily to reveal everything. It doesn't want to be compelled to reveal everything. And they want to sort of think about it before you reveal it. But doesn't want to, on cue, reveal everything that's just happened to them. We all have that deep inside part. Guys, how does the cat and the hat end? What's the question? Do you remember? The cat and the hat. The mother's coming home, and the last line from the book is, can we tell the things that happened that day? And it doesn't give the answer, and it says, well, what would you do if your mother asked you? And given what's just happened in the book, the answer is, you would lie your head off. You say, no, not that. Which, by the way, is why the book did not work out in the school market. Um, the book was published to the trade market in the forms that we see today. It was also published by Houghton Mifflin to the school market at the same time. It had a yellow cover, not the blue and the white and the red. And if you have one of those, you have probably a $100,000 book that is that rare. And they, they didn't work because school market didn't want to have a book that says, you would lie to your mom and dad. <laughs> so it just completely failed in that. In any case, stay with us. If you go into the public room, that's one thing. If you go back up into your room, that's another thing. So, imagine if you would, where your character would go. What's the room that your character would be pleased to go into? Maybe it's a safe room. Maybe it's a warm room. Maybe it is an engaged room. Maybe there's people there, maybe not. Maybe it's a place she just likes to go. What's the room that your character is inclined to go in? Now again, guys, remember that this is 1880s, 1890s or so. So it is a little different. It's a lot different from where we have it today. So you have a kitchen, which is quite different. If it's a sort of den area or a parlor kind of thing, there's obviously no TV. Today we organize our rooms, or we tend to organize our rooms around the television, right? So the TV's over here. Furniture tends to be organized around that so that we can watch this. But back in this period, there is none of that. And the rooms are organized around. Well, what is, does anyone know what's in the middle? What's in the middle of a room in 1880 or so? A round table. That's right. In, this was the room. A round table here, and the room is organized around that. Which means that today we have a room that's organized with all of us looking behind. But in that time, would be a room that's organized where we all look at each other, and that's the difference between that architecture and what we have now. So anyway, what room is your character likely to go into?
flip, please. What's the room that your person is less inclined to go to? The room your person is less inclined to go to. And of course, bathrooms are outside, so that can't count here. <laughs> A room inside. What's the room he or she is less likely to go into? Now watch what this gives us, because it's really neat to see how it goes and starts to go inside. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, 
outside Meryl's comfort zone is in the kitchen um, because she doesn't have a good relationship with her own mother and she's a courtship age and she can't find a suitor. And so she goes and finds the housemaid to confide in her after just coming off of this initial meeting. Um, but she knows that she has to divulge to her mother how everything went because her father is dead and um, she now has to find good suitors for herself and her mother. So she avoids the drawing room at all costs and um, she can hear her mother's whining voice beckoning her to the drawing room and the housemaid says you must go. Did you ever hear that? Because that's really, really interesting. Um, the question was, what room was she going to? And you have chapter five. Yeah. But that's so evocative. Just thinking about that, it used to be, what's the room where she feels this way? Will she go there? The fact that she likes to go into the kitchen, but that she feels comfortable. That says something about the woman in this time period. Suppose it's the case that she doesn't want to go into the kitchen. Then you have someone who may be really frustrated with the roles that are being assigned. That's interesting too. So how is she going to respond to that? Thing? What would you do then? And you're already going there. You've already done the story. Yes? Uh, my character she used to go in the first her daughter's room. Um, like right after school, she wants to like read with her daughter um, and just spend some time with her, be about her day as much as possible. And then she's avoiding the kitchen right now because she doesn't want to make dinner until everybody in the family is home because she and her husband treat uh, the whole dinner preparation and meal very much as family time, so everybody has to be involved in it, whether it's just cutting up the vegetables, doing the actual cooking. So she's waiting for her husband uh, to go to the kitchen. So guys, have you just heard that? How do I create tension between the mother and her daughter? One day the mother comes home and what happens? She normally goes up to the daughter's room to spend some time and meet with her. One day she comes and what's the, how do I create tension? Now what happens? Or she's not there. Or whatever. I like the locked door better. Because that sends a message, right? Okay, two rows up. Yeah. Um, I'm picturing this person coming home, going straight to her bedroom, and sitting at the table, and just taking a quiet moment. And I was imagining like that's like the one moment between her job working for a family and caring for her own family.
Um, we have to know that there's got to be a moment when Brenda is going to walk into some room that's dark and just go, oh, just a few seconds in these next two days. She's really busy, she's really happy, but she needs that moment. Tell us about her life. And your character is exactly the same. You know a lot about it. Guys, you actually have whipped way past where I would normally be at this point. Um, so far, I was going, I usually would say at this point, you know, we really still haven't gotten a story, but many of you already have, and we still stay outside. But one more. Place where your character would like to go. Yeah. So, I guess my character should be your character. I knew it a lot. He methodically removed his clothes, but then changed it to house clothes to go back outside. Does it want to? So you're so you're this is a character that's really kind of vacillating, right? Going and he tends to his vegetable garden while he's outside. Oh. Which is a reminder of his childhood. Okay. The vegetable garden could in fact be that could be a place of great joy. Yeah. It could also be a place where this is my work, don't come near me. And it could be that, right? An avoidance sort of thing. It could be a sort of drama, so it could be drama there. This has to work because there's no one coming in. And it could be that. So lots of possibilities that there's that. Good at it? He is because of his childhood on the farm. He's now in the city. But he has that stuff in his childhood. That's good. Okay. Let's start to go a little bit interior. Your character wants something. Your character wants something. What your character wants may in fact be a symbol of something larger. So for example, my grandmother, Ella Schmidt, was the first woman to vote in Queens County, New York. She wanted to have a voter registration card. Guys, what did she really want? <laughs> she needed a voice, right? She wanted a voice. She wanted to be participatory in a democracy. That's really interesting. The thing that she wants is a voter registration card. The thing that she wants more deeply, which she may not even have articulated to herself, is I want to have a voice. You have a 14, 15 year old kiddo, you're writing a YA novel. This kid really wants a driver's license. You guys, what do you really want? We have a 16 year old, the musical is coming up. He wants a part in a musical. He's never been in one before. What does he want? You have a teacher, you know what? You have a teacher who is eager, eager for a sabbatical. Just some time off. What is going to be given or not somehow? Just this one semester off. What does that person really want? <laughs> a change of pace? A chance to experiment perhaps? Something new, just to see how it goes. Often the thing that we want is the thing that suggests something larger, which we may not even be able to, or guys perhaps willing to articulate. So, your character, and you know a lot about your character now, your character wants something. What your character wants has to be holdable. I don't know, is that a word? It has to be what? You have to be able to hold it. Oh, so can't and there we go. It's 
It can't be truth, justice, and the American way. It can't be peace in the Middle East. I mean, it has to be something I can literally hold, physically hold. Okay? What is it that your character wants? And on this guy, think of everything you already know. The character who lies in your room. The character who won't go into the kitchen. The character, on and on, the ones we've been talking about. The character who is sort of fearful and careful when she walks. The character who wants to go into the vegetable garden. What, what does your character want? What's the physical thing that your character wants? Good. 
I mean, that's really, really good. And you've already populated the novel. The novel is a series of possibilities. Absolutely, that's fantastic. What does your character want? This is a program. That's really interesting. So what? Well, you know, I mean, that also be not to be into the thing, but the program. Right? It holds the memory. It holds the memory. So the character has been in it. No, it was added. Was added. And wants to have that memory. So something powerful must have happened at that event, so that he or she will remember that. Otherwise, why get the ball with the program?
Maybe the character desperately wants it. How would your character do it? Would your character commit fraud to get it? Would your character, I don't know, sell all you she had to get it? What would your character do to get that thing that you're going to carry? So just maybe just really one quick sentence on that. How would your character at least start to go ahead? And now do you feel it? You feel how we're suddenly starting to move, not just talking about our characters, but with that question, we are now talking about plot. <coughs> plot is the, 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 the structure that we use to talk about how our character gets what he or she needs, or learns what he or she needs, or how a character recognizes what he or she is dying for lack of. That's how, we, how it works. Just, I'll give you like just a, a couple of seconds to write that down. <clears throat> okay, so you see what we've done here. Essentially, this is an exercise in trying invention and trying to craft a character and then moving towards plot. Did you see also how quickly it can work? I mean, it's amazing what some of you have done here. Um, you have whole characters, you have towns populated. Uh, your first five chapters are done. <laughs> quite remarkable. Um, you do. I mean, you're really far along in this novel. You know a lot about your characters. And as soon as you start to ask those, that becomes, that's the question, that becomes a plot. Now in terms of the antique store, why this is titled the way it is, um, what I do is every so often I'm going to do this actually about me back up, I'll read 60 today. I notice there were a whole bunch of men, so I'm just going to stop and say, you guys got some old photos? And some will go, no, what are you, an idiot? And some will say, yeah, there's this whole box in the back. And I'll go through them, and if I find pictures that are that seem to me interesting, that provide narrative, and not all do, but if they seem to suggest narrative, I will absolutely pick them up. It used to be you could get them for like a know, for a buck. Um, it's that times have changed. Well, times have changed. Should I tell you that? Um, it's different times. It's harder to find some of these, which is why I've also gotten to um, I've just started to zero out some of the really interesting ones I find. But it's really a different feel, I think, hand, particularly a young kiddo, a photograph that's 125 years old, and it is a hand of that same way, or a hand of Xerox or something. It's just a different experience to have. And you can't believe if I do this with a younger, like a fifth grade audience, that it's one of the things that they have to be take that by is, is this really 100 years old? And I say, yeah. And they go, is it okay if I'm holding this? And I go, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I would, that's what I'm suggesting about going to antique stores. A lot of them still have it. If you go online, they're really expensive, don't do that. Um, but to find these stores is really helpful. And make sure they tell some sort of narrative on this. Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I go to an antique store a lot, and I always find them in the back corner. Yeah. I find the postcards. Oh, and he reads the postcards to me, and then he imagines the story about this person to the postcards. There is actually a name, which I can't think 
good right now for people who collect postcards like that. And you're right, I mean, the, the information or the note that's on the back could itself be used as a way of crafting the story. Maybe that's the opening one. Other questions, comments? Why do you write stories? Um, one of the questions is why do I write stories? I think I would have answered that differently 10 years ago, or maybe differently 20 years ago. Um, one is pleasure, and that's not an invalid reason to do it. Um, I like doing it. I like to sit on it. I do work for this type of I like to do that. I like to put the pages in. I like the physical, technical problem of it. I like to come up with a question or a character and figure out what's the next thing. How does this character get in the world? I love to find connections between what I think is going on in the story and what I think is going on in fifth grade or seventh grade or tenth grade or five. So that's one. Um, another sometimes questions. Something comes up and I wonder about it. So I saw an article about a kiddo in, I think, Fayetteville, Arkansas, in the New York Times. This kid was 13 years old. He had two children. He was 13. That interesting. <laughs> what is it like to be 13 and to be a father? And the obvious thing that we're going to say right away is, well, you know, this, this kid may be a predator, right? Or there's something that's really wrong with him. And I'm sure I'm glad that they've taken these children away from him. But suppose he wants to be a father. Suppose he wants to take up the responsibilities. Doesn't that become interesting? Is it possible that this kid would want that? I don't know. Is it possible? And so I wrote Orbit and Jupiter, and somebody's an answer to that book, to that question. You cannot believe how many stories I've heard from people who know a 13-year-old guy. 14-year-old guy who knows this has been the stupidest thing that's ever happened and will ever happen in his life and regrets it enormously, but wants to be responsible. And can't be. You know, obviously, no judge is going to get a child for 14 years, but he wants it. That is interesting. And that's why I look back at the people. Sometimes it really is um, looking, I suppose, looking for a story out of what seems like chaos. Um, right now I'm working on a story where there's a character from mythological Greek times. He has been in Hades and died 3000 BC as a kid. He's lived there all this time. He wants one thing. Can you guess what it is? He wants to get out. <laughs> get out, but there's this three-headed dog. How long does it take to calm a three-headed dog so he can get out? So he finally does, ends up, he crawls out through the tunnel, has 3,000 years, and comes up into the bathroom of a contemporary Midwest middle school. <laughs> and he's like 13. Now, meanwhile, Hades is rather irritated that this kid has gotten out, and so he sends someone the same age, a young girl, to Monica, to bring him back. <laughs> now isn't that I just told you everything how <laughs> was that character how was the demon going to get him how what would she look like what, what form would she take as a female middle school girl I suppose does he want to stay does he, 
I mean, there's a Midwest middle school of Buffaloes. Um, will the demon want to stay out? I mean, that'd be interesting, right? Um, and I love stories that give you those questions where I literally don't know what's going to happen. And I can sit down today, because I don't use that. I can sit down today and write my two pages and go, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe that will work. And that's so you want to tell stories that kids can and that's the basic But then you also have to have some pleasure in it too. Two years, sitting at your desk, you've got to have some pleasure in that. Last questions? Guys, thank you so much. I wish I could give you these, but I need them back, please.